Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Rick Vive. Rick started his professional hockey career playing in the final season of the World Hockey Association before playing the majority of his career in the National Hockey League from 1979 to 1992. At just 22 years of age, named the captain of your Toronto Maple Leafs, Rick became the first player in franchise history to score 50 goals in a season, and he went on to do it three years in a row. In fact, in that golden three-season period of 1981 to 1984, only Mike Bossy and the great one, Wayne Gretzky, scored more than Rick Five. Welcome, Rick, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm great. Uh, I'm in Niagara Falls where I live. And boy, I'll tell you, getting your name in with Wayne Gretzky and Mike Bossy is pretty special. I can tell you that. Well, I, I think you certainly deserve it. And I, I do want to ask, as you say, you're in Niagara Falls. I want to ask about your wife and kids. I understand you are now Grandpa Rick. Yes, uh, twice. Got a grandson that's going to be four in August and a granddaughter that just turned one. So, yeah, getting older. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic news. Now, of course, we expect a former captain of the Leafs to closely be watching the Maple Leafs playoff run, but you also, understandably, are paying keen attention to the ECHL, or East Coast Hockey League playoffs, where your son, Justin, is the captain of the Cincinnati Cyclones. In fact, he just scored the series-winning goal in a winner-take-all Game 7 to move on to the next round of the Kelly Cup playoffs against Toledo. Rick, does Justin ever ask you for hockey advice? No. No, he doesn't. It's kind of funny because I remember uh, he got drafted by Sudbury in the OHL, but he had already made the U.S. development program because he's a dual citizen, born in Buffalo. And we went up there for... Uh, a thing they had uh, for the for all their draft picks. And on the way back, he said, Dad, do you think I'm a great player? And I said, um, what exactly do you mean by great player? And he said, well, an impact player, like a John Tavares or someone like that. And I said, no. I said, I think you're a very good player. He said, okay. And I said, okay, what? He goes, well, I'm going to go to the U.S. program because I don't know how much or if I'm even going to play as a 16-year-old in Sudbury. And Mike Foligno was a coach who I played with in Buffalo. Uh, I figured he would play, but again, you know, the kid was smart, and he realized that, you know what, this is the best route for me to go. He did it, got a full scholarship to Miami, Ohio, and graduated. And I couldn't have been prouder of Fantastic. And, of course, he's now still continuing his career today, and if I understand correctly, he's even got some coaching while playing responsibilities yeah he's a player assistant coach uh they brought they let their assistant coach go right after new year's and then brought in another gentleman to, to be the assistant but he's in the office all the time with the head coach going over things and strategies and all that which i'm hoping they've been doing the last three days because they're down to nothing they lost two at home to toledo who are stacked from Grand Rapids. I think they had 10 guys sent down, and they play in Toledo tonight. So uh, unless they found a formula to stop those guys, they're, they're probably not going to go very far. <laughs> well, lots of playoff stress in the uh, Vive household, I can yeah. say. <laughs> now, Rick, you also have a podcast of your own, Squid and the Ultimate Lease Fan. Your co-host, Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease Fan, has already been a guest of this podcast. 
congratulations, as you guys are now well over 100 episodes. How do you enjoy interviewing fellow NHL alumni about their hockey and life experiences? Well, it, it's fun. Uh, I mean, I enjoy it. It's getting the guys to come on, try, you know, like trying to find guys and try to get their numbers or their emails and try to get a hold of them and, and, and ask them to come on. That's probably the toughest part of it all. Uh, but once you get on, uh, Mike does the script and uh, usually I get a chance to read it before we do it. You know, I enjoy it. I, I'd like to hear what other guys think of their playing days, what the, you know, what the game was like. And there's a, there's a lot of funny stories in, involved in those as well. Well, we're going to certainly reminisce with you and get your funny stories. And I'm going to start with the low-hanging fruit. I'm sure you've never been asked this before, Rick. How'd you get the nickname Squid? Well, that's a good one. That, of course, coming from PEI and going to Birmingham in the WHA at 19, John Brophy was our coach. He's from Anaganish, Nova Scotia. And we were doing power play at one end in practice, and everybody was doing something at the other end. It was our unit's power play unit's turn to come down and do the power play. And he's standing at the blue line, and he's yelling at the top of his lungs, squid, squid. And then Hartsburg, Craig Hartsburg said to him, he said, who you call it? He said, five. He said, you mean sput? He said, squid, sput, I don't give a fuck what you call him. Just get him down there. <laughs> and it stuck. Well, and actually, it didn't stick right away. I went to Vancouver. Everybody called me Rick or RV or whatever. And then I got trained to Toronto. We're playing Minnesota. We're, I'm stretching at the near the center ice line. And Craig comes over, and Dave Burroughs is standing right beside me. And, and Hartsburg says, hey, Squid, how's it going? And that was it. That was, Burroughs thought that was hilarious, and it, it kind of stuck uh, for the rest of my career. And, and even now, like, all the guys I see at charity tournaments and, and, and whatnot, it's squid. <laughs> well, let's please go all the way back, get the Rick Five story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? Well, I was born in Ottawa. I'm not even really sure what part of Ottawa, to be quite honest with you, because that was so long ago. My father worked for Dominion Bridge. Uh, I think when I was probably around five or six, he had an accident. They were bringing a beam across with a crane, hit him in the head, knocked him out. He fell 40 feet. He was in the hospital probably for a year and a half. I don't know how many surgeries he had. And so then he started working for a company that made altimeters and things like that for aircraft. And they were opening a plant in Amherst, Nova Scotia. They knew my mother was in PEI, and they asked him if he'd go out and run it. He said, sure. So off we go to Amherst, Nova Scotia. And the plant shut down two years later, and over to Charlottetown we go. <laughs> and then he started his own painting business. So, But we always had an outdoor rink. That was the best part about it, was that we, I lived in a fourplex in Ottawa, and somehow my father happened to be able to talk the, the other three people in that fourplex to use all the yards to build a rink. And we had lights with the pie plates and everything, and we were out there all the time. I mean, it was nonstop, and that's kind of where I learned to skate, learned to play, and learned to love the game of hockey. Well, eventually, you ended up with a 
very stellar junior hockey career with the Sherbrooke Casters, and then you began your pro career in the World Hockey Association, or WHA, by signing as an underage free agent with the Birmingham Bulls before the 78-79 season. You were part of a contingent of young players in the same situation who were nicknamed the Baby Bulls. Yeah. Rick, playing in Birmingham, Alabama, you surprisingly actually had pretty good attendance, but they would cheer at all the wrong times. I understand the line changes were quite popular. Anything that was physical, the line changes, uh, and of course, every time there was offside or icing, the, the guy on the mic in the penalty box would have to explain to the fans why the whistle was blown. And it took a while for them to catch on uh, all the, the nuances of the game. But finally they did. And, uh, yeah, we averaged probably nine or 10,000 a game, which wasn't that bad actually in Birmingham, Alabama, when you think about it. It, it was, it was, it was a blast, uh, playing with those other guys my age and, uh, some of the older veterans were really good to us. And, uh, John Rolfe was our coach who was at times funny, at times not so funny. <laughs> he, he would, uh, he would come in and blast us the odd time. And I remember one time, uh, this is probably the funniest one I, I can remember from being in Birmingham. He came in between periods. We were losing. And he went all the way around the room. He started at one end and he just kept going and, and just gave everybody shit. And he stopped at Paul Henderson. And Paul was a born-again Christian. And, of course, I had never seen growth lost for words in my life until then and he just stood there and probably for 10 seconds didn't say anything then finally he said paul paul maybe you can talk to the big guy upstairs because we need some help <laughs> and, and i understand uh, john brophy's voice didn't go up oh, when he yeah. was uh yelling <laughs> he, he was started at one pitch but the matter he got it would raise 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 all the way up and, uh, but he was, he was a great, great person, you know, probably had he come into the league, the NHL 15 years earlier than he did, he probably would have had success because the game was a lot different and yeah. it was about motivating the players where he wasn't a systems type guy. He was more of a motivational type coach. Certainly from a different era. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Rick, following the NHL-WHA merger at the end of that season, you were declared eligible for the 1979 NHL entry draft, and you were selected fifth overall by the Vancouver Canucks. What do you remember about that NHL draft experience? Well, first of all, I thought I was going to Washington because they were the only team that had called me and interviewed me, and they were picking fourth. And so I was convinced I was going to Washington, but it was a phone drop. And like it was in August too, because of the merger, everything was put back. And so I'm waiting at home for a phone call. And all of a sudden I get a phone call and it's Vancouver. And I thought, oh boy, that, I mean, going to Vancouver, the games start so, so late in PEI, my parents aren't going to be able to stay up and watch them, you know? And then I was thinking like, why the hell didn't Washington take me? But they took Mike Gardner, which wasn't a bad pick after all. True. Very true. <laughs> now, when you got to Vancouver, I want to ask about your experience. And for the uh, listeners out there, that if you want to pause right here and jump on your computer and Google Rick Vive Vancouver Canucks, those are the absolutely most dreadful uniforms I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe they're, they're actual uniforms. 
Oh, Halloween. They look like Halloween uh, costumes. And with the big V and all the different, well, black, yellow, whatever. There was, I don't know how many different colors. Orange, I think. There were several different colors in them. But Vancouver was good. I mean, it was a, it was a good place to start. Unfortunately, at training camp, uh, Harry Neal was a coach. And Jake Milford was our general manager. But he was ill. He was in the hospital. So Harry kind of took over those duties as well. So we had to do a five-mile run in training camp. And Harry always kept saying, you're out of shape. You're out of shape. And he, and one time he even said, I beat you in the five-mile run. I said, Harry, you couldn't even walk five miles, let alone beat me in a five-mile run. And we kind of got off on the wrong foot, I think. And uh, uh, I remember one exhibition game, we were up three or four goals on L.A., and one of their tough guys wanted to fight me. And you know, I just said, well, why would I fight you now? We're ahead three or four goals. Like, I don't want to turn the momentum of the game around. And then I think that was probably the last straw. Uh, then I played six exhibition games in six nights in six different cities. And then the regular season started, started out okay. And then all of a sudden, I ended up in the press box about Probably two months into the season, I was I was a regular scratch for quite a while, and then the big trade came. <laughs> the big trade came. The big big news in Toronto, February eighteenth, nineteen eighty, as it was announced that Dave the Tiger Williams was being shipped out to Vancouver, and that we were getting back in return two young up and comers named Billy Derlego and Rick Vive. Rick, how'd you find out about the trade, and uh, what was your reaction? Well. That's another funny story. When I went to Vancouver, there was no apartments in Vancouver available at all. So I lived with Glenn Hanlon for quite some time. We did get an apartment on a building that was being built, and it was right beside Harry Neal's building, ironically. And I forget who my roommate was that we got the apartment. But anyway, we moved. We went on a road trip late January, early February for two weeks, came back. Our apartment was ready. So we had a little party, a little apartment warming party, whatever you want to call it. And about 6.30 in the morning, the phone rings beside my bed. I hear it ringing, and I'm going, wait a minute. Our phone isn't even hooked up yet. Like, But I guess when you press the buzzer at the door to the building, the phone rang. So I picked it up and then said, hey, Rick, it's Harry the Elder. You want to let me in? I hung up because I thought someone was just playing a prank on me. And uh, the second time he called, I realized it was it. I recognized his voice, and I pressed a button that I thought was the one to let him in. And I got my roommate up, and we started throwing all the empty beer bottles and everything in anywhere we could find to hide them. And I obviously pressed the wrong button, so he called a third time. And he said, never mind, just come downstairs. So I, I went downstairs, and let him in and he said we just traded you to Toronto uh, you and Bill Derlego and I said really and I said who did you get and he said Tiger Williams and Jerry Butler and I, I actually laughed I, <laughs> I, you know I, I don't know why I laughed I mean you know Tiger was the type of player they needed at, the, at that point I think and, and he had success there and the team had success with him but I did I, I don't know I just got a chuckle out of it and we had to catch a, 
I believe it was a 12 o'clock flight or 1230. And so Bill Lego's wife picked me up uh, at the rink and drove us to the airport. We get on the plane and Billy goes, uh, you want to, you want to have a couple of beer? And I said, well, yeah, whatever. And the pilot comes on and he says, uh, welcome to Air Canada, yada, yada. And he goes, uh, being election day today, there will be no alcohol served on this flight. Even though we were, we weren't getting into Toronto until nine something that night, which was after the election. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Billy offered the flight attendant a thousand dollars service. I said, Billy, we don't need a beer that bad. Now, come on. And sure enough, we get into Toronto and every radio station, TV station, they were all there waiting for us. And, uh, so probably the best thing that ever happened that we didn't have a, a couple of beer. <laughs> yeah, you got saved. Well, certainly that must have been a, uh, an awakening to see the Toronto mayhem of the media as you got into that. And of course, Toronto now a totally different market. Uh, Rick, I got a fun side note for you. I attended elementary school at Ernest Public School at Victoria Park in Finch in what was then known as the Postal District of Willowdale in the borough of North York. And the big news in the school playground right after your trade, was that a Toronto Maple Leafs player's wife was going to be our new phys ed supply teacher, this being your wife, Joyce. Did Joyce enjoy her teaching career being known as the wife of a Toronto Maple Leaf? Yeah, I think she did. I mean, well, she loved teaching. That was her passion. That's what she went to the university for. And uh, she loved coaching. Uh, I don't think she ever really looked at it as Rick Vibe's wife. I think she was her own person, and she went on and did her job. And then after that, she ended up teaching up at Jane Finch at Jane Junior High, and she did a fantastic job up there. In fact, I, I run into people today that say that because my wife started basketball teams and volleyball teams and all kinds of different teams for the kids to play to keep them off the streets. You know, we all know Jane Finch area at that time wasn't a very good area. And so that kept them occupied. And I run into people today that said, if it it wasn't for your wife, I wouldn't be where I am today. And, you know, that that makes me feel pretty good. Well, it's so great to hear. And obviously, the wife of a professional hockey player is not easy. You're always moving around. Certainly in your uh, memoir, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life, you really talk about the importance of Joyce in your life. And certainly uh, there was one example, Rick, after you got traded, uh, Joyce is left, I believe, with uh, one child pregnant and you out of the house suddenly traveling to a new city. Yeah, that was uh, that was when Mike Keenan came into Chicago my second year there. Well, I mean, I had 43 goals a year before, but when Mike came in, all of a sudden I couldn't play uh, I wasn't good enough. I, I played power play in front of the net. But I, I talked to Jerry Meehan, who was the general manager of the Sabres at the time, and he said Mike wanted to make the trade Christmas Day. And Jerry said, I am not trading a player on Christmas Day. So they did it the next day, the day after. So I got to leave right away because I'm supposed to play in Buffalo that night. There's a snowstorm. I don't make it in time to play. But I'm gone, and my wife was left with, I think my son was two at the time, or close to two, pregnant, 
having to get the realtors, having to get the movers, having to do everything on her own. And I didn't get a chance to see them until February 4th. And that was when our all-star game was. Uh, it was always on a Tuesday. There was a dinner on the Monday night, Tuesday pregame skate, then the all-star game that night. Well, we were in L.A., I believe, on the Saturday or Sunday. I can't remember. I think I think it was a Saturday. And I took the red eye after the game to Chicago, and then we put all the final stuff in the moving truck, and off we went to Buffalo. And in the meantime, I'm in Buffalo. I got to rent a place. I bought a house, but it wasn't going to be ready until May, which was actually kind of nice because we could put the finishing touches on the in inside of the house and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted her to be present in order to do that, you know, because I wasn't going to make those decisions on my own. <laughs> no, you're so smart than that. <laughs> so anyway, it all worked out pretty good. Like we hardly even opened any boxes. We put them all in the basement at the rental place or wherever we could find room to put them uh, because we knew we were going to be moving a month or so later, a couple of months later into the new house. So, and we loved Buffalo. It was really, really good. It was a great fan base. The people there were, were wonderful. We were in a wonderful neighborhood. The school system was excellent for their, for our kids. Uh, so, you know, that, that was the last place I played. And, uh, other than Toronto where I played the longest, that was probably the best place I played. Well, shout out to Joyce and Rick. I'm going to put you on the spot. What what anniversary are you coming up to? You must be close to forty. Forty-two, forty-two, June sixth, and then June eighth, getting inducted into the Quebec Major Junior League Hall of Fame. So we'll be leaving on the, we'll be celebrating on the sixth, leaving on the seventh, and coming back on the ninth. And I think I think my two sons are going to be coming with us. I don't know about their wives. Well, one of them's married. One has a girlfriend that he lives with in Cincinnati, Justin. But they bought a dog together, so I got to figure the ring's coming pretty soon. <laughs> First comes the dog, then comes the ring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rick, you were part of an absolutely legendary trio when you played in Toronto. We had John Anderson at left wing, Billy Derlego at center, and you, Rick Vive, of course, on the right side. Why did the three of you mesh so well? Well, you know what? I think... We we all had different skills, so to speak, or different the different ways the way we played. Like John was fast, and he could fly up and down the wing like nobody could back then. Billy was great with the puck, getting it to us, and and making moves, and and of course I was a shooter. So it kind of all just came together, and uh, and then Billy got hurt halfway through the three fifty goal seasons. They traded for Dan Dau. Who came in and he was my sentiment for the second half of those three fifty goal seasons. And he wasn't quite Billy, but he worked extremely hard. He would go in the corners to get the puck and get it to me. So uh Danny did a wonderful job uh getting me the puck as well. Well, time for another fun side note. My a house that I grew up in, Victoria Park and Van Horn, our local plaza featured what I believe was the very first location of what soon became a chain of John Anderson hamburger outlets. <laughs> I remember a lot of the Leafs showing up at the grand opening to sign these. They were like photo postcards. Rick, did you enjoy many meals at John Anderson hamburgers? And in hindsight, did it work out as a good investment for him? Well, I did enjoy going to his place uh, a lot. <laughs> The Suvaki and the burgers were great. 
But I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I uh, talking to John, I think he had a little bit of a falling out with his partner. I think after right around the end of year one, and then he ended up just selling it to him, the whole thing, and and he wasn't involved anymore. I mean, there's still a couple of them around, but absolutely, you know, but he has nothing to do with it. it it's uh, he he. Like I said, I think he had a little falling out with his partner, and and that ended their relationship and uh, ended his uh, involvement in John Anderson Hamburgers. Well, it is still a good product, and for anyone interested, the that original location, Van Horn and Victoria Park, is still open, and they still have it's it's getting a little yellow now, but there's a <laughs> John Anderson jersey on display. <laughs> Rick, I have a really romantic vision of all the past Toronto Maple Leaf captains. I kind of picture like a bat signal going out and all the former Leaf captains congregating in a really elaborate, like a man cave with smoking jackets and cigars and brandy as you reminisce over stories of Maple Leaf Gardens. And of course, in attendance would be Dave Keon, Daryl Sittler, Matt Sundin, Wendell Clark, Rob Ramage, Dougie Gilmore. Maybe you even let Dion Phaneuf drop by once in a while. Of course, you, Rick Vive, would be there. Please share the story of how you became the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1982 at the tender age of just 22 and the importance of the support you got from some of the older players. Well, it was kind of weird. It, was, uh, it wasn't it was your normal, you know, usually I, I, I believe like the GM, uh, maybe the head coach uh, would call the player into their office and say, would we would like you to be our captain with you accepting. Well, that wasn't the case then. Daryl Daryl got traded. That was a whole thing that happened when Harold hired Punch in Black back, and that was that was a disaster. But finally Daryl agreed to to a trade to Philadelphia. And then very shortly after that, uh, at the rink one day, Harold just came up to me, Harold Ballard that is, and just he said he just pointed at me. He said, "You are our captain," and I'm like, like I, I, I like I was stunned and, and scared at the same time because I didn't know whether I was ready or not at 22 years old. We had an older team at the time, but then I thought, well, shit, if I turn him down, he's going to trade me. No, no question. I'm going to be out of here in about two or three days, probably. So I agreed to it, and fortunately, I had Warrior Salming sitting right beside me. And a couple of other older guys on the team that really helped me out a lot. Boria especially. He was probably the biggest guy that really helped me the most as a captain. If I said anything in the room and anybody said anything, he would stand up and say, hey, listen to him. He's our captain. And I'll never forget that. Well, you talk about this concept of the uh, the angel on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder. Well, that was uh, Ron Ellis, when I got traded there, I got seated right. Ron Ellis was right to my left and Boria to my right. And of course, Ronnie, Ronnie was a great person, a great gentleman. Uh, but he, and he was a born again Christian. He never really talked about it a whole lot or, or pushed it on anybody or anything like that. But it almost felt to me like, yeah, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, which way do I go? Well, I went more towards Boria's side, the devil's side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Rick, my favorite player growing up was the late, great Boria Salmink. You've got so many great Boria memories and stories. Maybe if you don't mind sharing the one about his game day activities on the ski slopes. Well, yeah, I mean, 
I think that was probably the craziest thing I ever saw. I mean, Boria would go up, I don't know where he would go, up north somewhere uh, with his family and ski for three hours, maybe four hours on a Saturday afternoon, then come back. And you'd see the goggle marks on it, on his, you know, around his. And then he'd go out on the ice and be the best damn player on the ice that night. And, and everybody was just like flabbergasted that he was able to go skiing for that amount of time and then come back and be the best player on the ice. And he did it in Vancouver a bunch of times too. When we played out there, he would go skiing uh, at Grouse Mountain and then come out, come down that night and play. And, and play well. And play well. It always baffled me. I, I just, I did. But that was Borea. He was one heck of an athlete and a very, very strong uh, ability to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, Rick, you flew out to Sweden with a group of Maple Leafs alumni and management to attend the life celebration of Borea Salming. How was that experience? And to see, you know, what he meant to his home country of Sweden, that must have been very emotional for you it was it was uh it was a lot of fun but a very emotional at the same time and uh we played in the city that he played in sweden before he came over to toronto and his brother's banner is already hanging up in that rink and i think it holds about 8500 people and it was full and when they were raising his banner there was a a gentleman singing a song that was kind of a I don't want to say a sad song, but but it was kind of a in tribute to him, uh, the way the song was was played, and I I just I couldn't stop crying. I I I mean I I looked down the line on the guys on our blue line, and probably two thirds of the guys were were had tears coming out of their eyes because it was very emotional. He was a great person. He was a great player. And he meant a lot to all of us uh, that went over there because uh, we all played with him, and he was a wonderful person. And it, it was it was it was a lot of fun, but again, it was it was very emotional as well. Well, I thought it was great that uh, he was able to come back to Toronto and have those uh, great evenings mm-hmm. both at the arena and the Hall of Fame. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Bernie Nichols, Anders Hetberg, Christopher Stieg, Rick Natris, Kent Manderville, and that dynamic goaltending duo of Alan Bester and Ken Reggett. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Offside, the Harold Ballard doc. Uh, we had executive producer Michael Geddes on this podcast. Now, Rick, you were in it. What did you think of the finished product once you got a chance to see the whole documentary? I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I got to go to the original screening. Joyce and I went. I, I was kind of surprised because there was some things in there that I didn't even know. You know, I thought I knew everything about Harold and all that kind of stuff, but you know, one of the things that really surprised me was that when he went to prison, they kicked him off the board, but they didn't make him sell his shares. So he had a lot of shares. So when he got out of prison, he started hunting down everybody else and, and gathering up their shares. And then eventually, you know, became the sole owner. But it, it was very, very well done. Everything was documented. I, I had no idea about the Silver Seven. I, mean, I didn't know what 
they were, or and I never heard of it before. And so seeing those things that I didn't know anything about kind of put everything into context how the 80s was for me because I got to see how Harold manipulated his way into owning it all and then the tiger cats and everything else. So those are some of the things that I didn't know and I got to see how he did it and that kind of put everything into perspective for me. Well, something that was surprising for some viewers was that Harold Ballard actually lived in Maple Leaf Gardens. Rick, what was the experience of meeting with him in his, quote, home office, so to speak? Well, it was really weird. Well, first of all, if you went up to see Harold, you had to wear a suit. Okay, so, well, no one wore a suit to to practice on a rec, you know, practice days. So they always had a suit in the dressing room hanging in a stall and uh, a locker, whatever you would call it. So if you had the if you got called up to Harold's office that you had to get that suit and put it on. So I went up there and when I walked in, I I was shocked that you could not see one bit of paint on the walls or the ceiling of his entire office. It was all newspaper clippings. And of course it was all hair. It's all about- it was all about him. And uh, I'm looking around, I'm looking up, I'm looking left, right behind me and I'm going, geez, everything's above Harold here. There's all newspaper clips. I was kind of flabbergasted by it. Now, Rick, you actually got along with Harold Ballard and didn't think he was such a bad guy. It's just that he wouldn't spend his money. Yeah. I mean, Harold didn't treat us poorly. You know, Harold. I, Harold's goal was to be on the front page of the sports on every newspaper every day. And he pretty much almost accomplished that on a basis. But he didn't want to spend the money for a good general manager or a good coach. And certainly he didn't pay us probably what guys that we were doing the similar things in Toronto on, on other teams were making. You look at, like we mentioned, Gretzky and Bossy, those three years that those were the only two to score more goals. Well, I'm pretty sure they were both making twice or more than what I was making and maybe three times what I was making. But I think more importantly was he wouldn't spend the money for a good general manager. And I mean, no offense to Jerry McNamara, but I think he was in over his head. And, you know, probably if Harold would have used that money that he had to bring in a a smart general manager, we could have had more success. Well, and certainly the other big thing I learned was that the trainer of your team was actually Harold's boat mechanic. Yep, he was. Guy Kinnear and Midland, uh, where Harold had his cottage, and uh, at the marina there, he was a boat mechanic there. He hired him as our trainer, and I don't know if he took any courses or not. <laughs> I really don't know for sure. But I remember one time I came in the day after a game, and I, I had a sore shoulder. And I said to the guy, I said, uh, we called him Gunner. I said, Gunner, I said, I don't know what's wrong what I did last night, but my shoulder's aching. So he goes in his bag and he hands me two packs of Neo Citra. And I go, what's this? He said, well, you must be getting the flu. You said your shoulder's aching. I said, okay, let me rephrase that. I said, my shoulder hurts. He goes, well, that'll work. <laughs> you started laughing. I go, really? Like, you think this is going to take away the pain in my shoulder? <laughs> 
this was certainly a different era. Neil Citrin used to uh, fix hockey injuries. Yeah. Well, Rick, as uh, as mentioned, you were the first Maple Leaf in franchise history to score more than 50 goals in the season. You did it for three straight seasons. In fact, your 54-goal season would stand as a Toronto Maple Leafs franchise record for 40 years before it was surpassed by someone named Austin Matthews. When Austin did break your record last year, uh, were you on hand? And uh, what was the experience like of uh, passing on the torch, so to speak? Well, I remember when I broke Frank's Mahalovich's record of 48. Uh, he came down the next day and came in the room and congratulated me. He got pictures taken with me and everything. And, and I wanted to do the same thing if anybody ever broke it. And, uh, you know, who would have thought a kid growing up in Arizona would be the guy that would break it, really? Yeah. That's insane to think about that in, in hockey anyway. But so I got to meet him. He broke it in Dallas on a Thursday night. So I didn't get to see him there, but they played Montreal Saturday night at home. And I saw, I went down to see him before the pregame skate in the morning. Uh, we had a good chat, you know, I congratulated him and everything. And then I said to him, I said, well, I said, Austin, I said, you're on a roll. Why don't you just get 65 because no one's ever going to break that, but you. <laughs> yeah. So we, we had a good chat. We had a, a few laughs and, and then on the Monday, Brendan invited me down to the practice rink. So I got, I, he, meet, he met me outside and went in, met all the coaches, which I, I had met them all before anyway. Then we go into the, vi the video room, which is basically like a small theater. And Sheldon went over everything he wanted the players to know. And then he said, okay, we got a special guest here. He said, uh, let's show the film. So they showed about 15 of my goals, a fight. And he said 54 goals, 200 and whatever penalty minutes. And I heard a couple of the guys behind me go, holy shit. I looked back and I see who it was. So I, I went to them after because we went into the kitchen or the, the rest. Well, it's like a restaurant. There's a kitchen. They have cooks and everything. So we're sitting there eating. And I said, I said, guys, I said, look, I said that you, you probably weren't born when I was playing. in yeah. And I said, but that the game was much different back then. There was probably three quarters of our team had over 200 penalty minutes. And they said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, it, it was a completely different game. I mean, you know, you, you if you ever watched old films of, of the 80s when we were playing in the 70s, you would see what it was like. And it was much, much different than it is now. Sure. You had to fight for every inch of real estate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got a book. All the way down the ice, he got whacked, hacked. Like, I, mean, I remember one time we were playing the Islanders, and I went in the corner to get the puck, and one of their defensemen grabbed me with his glove, and I couldn't get away from him. And I'm thinking, how the hell can he hold on to my sweater with a hockey glove, and I can't get away from him? So there was a face-off later on in the game, and the guy had taken his glove off, and he was putting it back on, and then I, I saw, and he had most of the palm of his glove cut out. All there was was where the fingers went in at the end. And that's, so they would take, he would take his fingers out and use his hand to grab your sweater. You would not see that today. And another huge difference is the sticks. Rick, your stick was famously the size and weight of a tree trunk. Oh, yeah, it was. You, <laughs> you still play in alumni games today with the new technologically advanced super light sticks. 
I'm sure you get asked this about a billion times. How many more goals would you have scored in your playing days if you had been able to play with the sticks that they are using today? Well, you know, that's hard to say, really. I mean, because, I mean, the things have changed. The goalie's equipment is much bigger now. The goalies are better than they were back then. They weren't stand-up goalies like they were when I play. So I think you just have to kind of look at it. Probably, I guess if I was playing today, let's say, I would train the way they do, use the same equipment they do. But I would find a way to probably score 50 goals you take Rocket Richard, put him in today's game. He would find a way to score 50 goals. I, I do believe that anybody that did it multiple times in, in the National League in any decade would probably find a way to do it in any other decade. And uh, what's your what's your game plan in alumni games these days? You uh, go to your spot in the slot and you, you still got the Rick Vive shot? Oh, yeah. I just, I just get open. And, and with those things, you just lean on that thing and it just flies off those sticks and you go bar down like like uh, i mean it's unbelievable i mean with those big heavy ones that i used the slot shot was a big thing with the new sticks uh unless you're using like 110 flex it's hard to take a slot shot because of the whip in 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 the shaft and uh so you, the snapshot wrist shots like i just if i'm top of the circle i can i can go bar down over the goalie's short side, like very, very easily because of the technology of the sticks. He's still got yeah. it. That's good to hear. Well, the legs aren't, now, but, the, <laughs> but the hands are. <laughs> now, Rick, you also played with a helmet known as the Cooper Knuckle Buster. And at one point, due to neck injuries, you were actually wearing a football collar. Uh, the equipment is sure different today. Oh, much different. And, and that, actually, that as it turns out, I... I had a neck injury, and in fact, I just got back from the doctors a while back uh, today and had x-rays taken. He said, oh, you got a lot of flattened discs in your neck and everything, and that's probably from the 5,000 cross-checks I got in the neck. Yeah. Um, so anyway, in, in Buffalo, I had the neck injury, and they said, you should wear this because the football players wear, wear it and everything. As it turns out, the... Uh, the specialist I went and saw said, no, no, take that off. He said, because if your neck goes over top of that, that's going to do even more damage. So then I took it off and I didn't wear it after that. I want to give a shout out to Scott Morrison, the co-author of your memoir called Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. Rick, how did you enjoy the process of putting together the book? And uh, what was the feedback you got from both your family and your fans? Well, you know, it was both good and, and, and tough. Because uh, it was tough to talk about, you know, the bad things, the drinking and and those those types of things. I remember I had a Zoom call with my sister and my two brothers, and my two brothers weren't very happy. Of course, they had only seen the first chapter uh, because I had sent it out to them. They said, well, you're making mom and dad sound like terrible people. And I said, no, I said, I'm not. I said, that's not my goal in in this story. It's about... It's about what, what I had to go through. And, you know, we grew up, I wouldn't say like really poor, but but not a, a family. Like my parents did without, they didn't go out for dinner or restaurants and all that. They made sure that we had what we needed to play hockey, play different sports, uh, have, you know, nice clothes to go to school and that sort of thing. So, 
you know, I, I, I gave them a lot of adulation in the book for what they did so that we would have a better life. You know, I said, I said to my brothers, I said, look, wait till it, you read the whole book before you make any judgments on what I'm putting out there. So, but I haven't heard from them since, <laughs> since it came out. So, so maybe they didn't like it. I don't know. Oh boy. And I, I know that the publication, unfortunately, kind of coincided with COVID and everything. So that kind of messed it up. But, but what do you hear back from fans and the general public who've had a chance to read your story? I'll tell you what, I've, I've, I have not got one negative response from anybody that's ever read it. In fact, Builder Lego's uh, wife read it, and uh, I, I, I've gotten to know her very well. Uh, this is his second wife. Uh, his first wife, uh, they got divorced, and then she passed away. And she read it and sent me a, a text saying, read your book, loved it. It was great, and you know, and and I've gotten that from pretty much everybody that's read it. So, I'm, I'm not really in touch with my two brothers that much more. My sister, because she's a year older than me, and she's a nurse in, in Cape Breton, and so I talk to her quite a bit. I am going out to PEI in August for a, or July rather for a golf tournament in Summerside. So hopefully, I'll get to maybe stay an extra day or get in a day early and get to see my brothers and talk to them. And, and I'll certainly bring it up because I don't even know if they've read it. So I'll bring a couple of copies and I'll, I'll, I'll bring, I'll give one to each of them and say, read it. And then tell me, the then thing. tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, families are always uh, challenges at times. Rick, I appreciate all your time. You've been so great. I do want to close with asking about any current projects you're working on and where we can best follow you. I don't know if you're a social media guy. Well, yeah, I kind of am. I, I, I have people that do it for me, but uh, I like to get things out there when I'm doing charity work and that sort of thing, like all the hockey tournaments that are for Easter Seals, Hockey Helps the Homeless, uh, Baycrest, uh, you name it. I don't do a lot of other things, but when I'm doing something for, for good, uh, for to help other people, I like I like to get that out there on Instagram, Twitter a little bit. Twit, I'm not on Twitter very much, but Instagram, and I just like people to see, you know, what former NHL players are doing to help people less fortunate than perhaps what we were. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you uh, you love to combine it with uh, golf, oh. which is a, a great thing. Mix all your favorite things. Yeah, played this morning, but. Didn't have a good round this morning. <laughs> <laughs> There's always tomorrow, Rick. You know yep. that. I want to thank you for your time. It's great catching up with you and hearing all your stories. And I want to wish you a great summer and continued success. In- well, thank you very much. And uh, I'm looking forward to the summer. I love golf. Absolutely. Rick Vibe, still competing and still having <laughs> fun. So that's great. And to the listeners, on behalf of Rick Vibe, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. 
Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.